Welcome to Crop Sense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today we have Dr. Dominic Rizek and Dr. Anders Huseth, field crops entomology specialist with North Carolina State University. Welcome back, fellas. Hi, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's good to be back, although it's not exciting to be back with the topic we're going to talk about today. All right, so I guess let's start off by what species of thrips are growers likely to encounter in North Carolina? Well, we did a study a number of years ago throughout the Southeast, and the answer is it's variable depending on the field, year, where you're at. So it's hard to say, but our most abundant species tends to be tobacco thrips, the one we're talking about today relative to resistance. In hot, dry years, western flower thrips can be more of an issue, but when we did this survey, we found onion thrips, we found eastern flower thrips, we even found soybean thrips. And you cannot tell species from just looking at the, the thrips. In fact, even if you get them under a, a microscope, you have to slide mount them and look at characters like the length of hair behind their head or different structures on their antenna, or you can, you, you can tell the species apart molecularly. So we just tend to kind of assume that we're dealing with tobacco thrips and then Sometimes when the adults are lighter colored, we can pretty safely say that those are Western flower thrips. Uh, but the answer is it's complicated. Can you talk about the history of resistance in thrips in North Carolina? Yeah, so I mean, globally, thrips are a major pest, particularly in greenhouses. And Western flower thrips, which is a sister species to tobacco thrips, is cosmopolitan. We find them all over the globe. And they're very problematic pests, meaning growers are oftentimes spraying a lot for these insects in, in greenhouses and also in field settings. And so they've got a really long history of resistance development. In contrast, tobacco thrips are sort of a, a local pest that's present throughout the cotton belt. And we haven't had very many problems with thrips, resistance in tobacco thrips. However, Recently, we've documented neonicotinoid resistance in thrips over the past several years, um, and, and that resistance is variable in the landscape. So depending on where we are in the cotton production area in North Carolina, if it's Halifax County or further east or down towards Union County, we see a lot of variation in whether or not those populations are resistant to the neonicotinoid insecticides. And I think that's important to remember that some of these populations are fairly localized and so it's really a hodgepodge of insensitivity across our cod production belt. Can one of you give us, most people may know what thrips are, but just a quick overview of, of what kind of insect it is and what kind of damage folks would see if they were to thrips damage. Uh, well, they're, they're teeny tiny and they have piercing sucking mouth parts like a hypodermic needle. And so they're going to, they're going to pierce a cell suck out the entire cell's contents. And what you see in the place is a dead cell. So on a lot of plants, you see this silvering or speckling that's kind of left behind. The issue in cotton is when they're feeding on the, the leaf before it's unfurled or completely developed is by removing those cells, you have a gap left in there. And so that dead space will come out as undeveloped portions of the leaves. So we kind of see that ragged appearance. And sometimes we'll see the the kind of bubbling as a result. And that's kind of the, that's the main issue on cotton is really the interfering with the development of the leaf before it's completely unfurled. Yeah. And I'd just like to add, I mean, oftentimes when people are scouting cotton, they're seeing the adult tobacco thrips, which are dark brown, sort of cigar shaped insects. 
Western flower thrips are more of a cream brown, tannish color. Uh, and oftentimes what we're looking at is the adults. But if you got a microscope or some soapy water and you dunk that cotton seedling in that water, you would probably find the larvae, which are much smaller, also cigar shaped in a lighter color uh, without wings. And those insects are also in their feeding. So while we might see two or three adults on a plant, there'll be many, many more larvae that are feeding on that growing point on the cotton seedling, which results in some of these characteristic thrips injury symptoms that we see and also that crazy cotton that sometimes we see under extreme pressure. Can y'all talk a little bit about the most current resistance that's been found in North Carolina, which is acephate resistance in thrips? Well, I think the story begins with the Mid-South. So several years ago, folks had detected some failures or some reduced control of acephate, which is an organophosphate insecticide targeting thrips. And really the reason we're seeing this probably is more usage as a result of neonicotinoid resistance. Now we're rotating acephate into the management plan at a much higher frequency in cotton. In North Carolina, last year, we had our first report of reduced control out of peanuts in the northeastern part of the state, where acephate is also used on an extensive amount of the acreage. So places where we have both peanut and cotton in the landscape are places in which we see um, or we suspect more selection for resistance, which is a process in which we're knocking out susceptible individuals from a population and what remains are those that are resistant to that insecticide selection pressure. So unfortunately, the acephate case, the detection of resistance was sus suspect last year, and we've had more reports in the northeastern part of the state of spray failures with acephate and cotton in particular. Uh, we sent off populations to a collaborator at the University of Tennessee who ran a standardized bioassay in which we compared our resistant population to those in the Mid-South, and we detected greater than expected survival uh, in our populations, which is very concerning as far as what we would expect to see for control using acephate on cotton. And so now that we have re neonicotinoid resistance and acephate resistance in some places in the state, the question is, is what do we rotate to to really solve this problem? So I guess that brings up my last question. What should growers do moving forward? You know, we don't have a really good handle on how widespread folks are having problems with orchid in the state. So it's difficult to say in other parts of the state, but certainly in the Northeast where they're having these issues, growers should rotate to a, an entirely different mode of action. Labeled options that are not good rotational partners are things like bidrin and dimethoate. Those are both in the same class as acephate. And so if we have resistance to acephate, it would be reasonable to expect that we would have resistance to these products as well. So a product that is effective and in a different class is the active ingredient spinetarim. That is a labeled ingredient of the insecticide Intrepid Edge. Intrepid Edge is labeled for cotton, but it doesn't have a thrips label. So Radiant is a product that's labeled in cotton that also has a thrips label. While both could be used legally in cotton, with Radiant having the thrips label, that's the one we've been recommending at three ounces and paired with the surfactant. It's important that growers focus on coverage and volume, all the important things with sprays, but the surfactant is really key with this particular insecticide. Oftentimes when I do my screening trials, I'll add in a surfactant and then sometimes I'll leave the surfactant out and generally do not see a benefit to that surfactant 
this is not the case with spinetarim. It really does about double the efficacy to include that surfactant in there. So that's just a really critical piece of the control equation. I would also encourage growers to sample both before and after the spray. Getting a lot of folks contacting me saying they're finding thrips behind the spray. And that's because most folks have never checked behind their sprays before. We do this routinely, Anders and I, in trials every year where we, we evaluate both numbers and injury. And I was just looking at some data from last year that I had generated on the station of Plymouth. And untreated and uh, gaucho seed treatments, I was running uh, 20 to 40 thrips per seedling. And then in plots sprayed with orthene or acephate and aglogic, I'm running you know, six to eight thrips per seedling. And so the numbers are vastly reduced with the spray, but they're not completely eliminated. So it's reasonable to expect some thrips behind the spray. It's not necessarily a good indication that the spray didn't work. Now, if you had lots of immature thrips before your spray and lots of immature thrips after your spray, then there's something wrong. But again, we might expect an 80, 90% reduction, not a hundred percent reduction. And I, I like to just follow on that. So just thinking a little bit about thrips biology on cotton is important here. It, you know, these insects lay their eggs, you know, underneath the cuticle of the leaves, sometimes in those fleshy cotyledons in the first true leaves, et cetera. So you can have larvae that are emerging over a period of time. And so while you might get suppression of the generation of larvae that are on the plant when you make your spray, depending on the residual activity of the materials we're choosing, uh, we might see a resurgence in thrips as just as a result of additional hatching or reinfestation of the, the crop afterwards. And so it's really important to think about that in the context of what you expect for spray performance. In addition to that, remembering what our susceptibility window is. So as we're getting to three or four true leaves, even if the cotton's looking bad, we're really exiting that period in which we're worried about thrips uh, contributing to a yield loss. And so, you know, being mindful of what the crop stage is relative to where you might exit that susceptibility window is a key part for making a good spray decision. Is it really worth it? Maybe Dominic wants to comment a little bit on that as well. Yeah, those are such great points, Anders. Thank you for, for bringing that up. I, I think you stated the point well. Did want to add a little bit to the residual comment. You know, acephate is taken up in through the plant leaves and moved throughout the plant, whereas spinetarem is taken into the leaves but not really moved throughout the plant. And so it's it's reasonable to expect, and indeed we've seen in our trials that spinetarem will not have quite the same residual for tobacco thrips as something like acephate will. So it's an Excellent product for Western flower thrips, uh, probably better than acephate in those situations, but maybe just a, a little weaker in the absence of resistance for tobacco thrips. A lot related to that residual piece. You're not going to have as much residual with spinetarum, but of course, it's the, the needed and obvious thing to switch to if you have acephate resistance. So those are some really kind of critical things to, to consider. Is there anything else we need to address as far as resistance and thrips before we wrap this thing up? We are going to try and get a, a handle on, you know, how widespread this is. Both Anders program and my program is going to dedicate some time in the next few weeks to make some collections, both in the Northeast and outside of the Northeast, to find out how widespread it is. But we're not going to have a super clear picture, even after that testing of what things are looking like, because the nature of resistance can be so localized. 
So it's it's going to be a, a difficult time period to to manage strips, I would say, in the next few years. The other thing I'd like to say is that we probably have had this resistance for a while. It's just been covered up because thrips injury to cotton is a function of the environment, how well the plant is growing, and it's also a function of numbers, how many thrips there are. And this year we've had, I don't think particularly heavy thrips numbers, but we've had an extremely challenging growing season. And so it's made that, that thrips injury look worse than it would have normally. Now we're entering a period where thrips numbers are gonna be high, and hopefully the environment's gonna be good such that that cotton can, can outgrow it. But I do wanna sort of brace folks that it's gonna be it's going to be a challenging few few years going forward for thrips management and cotton. Yeah, and I'd just like to follow on that. So I've been running around in the southeast part of the state. I sampled in Sampson County. I've done some sampling in Halifax, Northampton, Wilson counties, looking for thrips. And population levels are, I feel like, are a little bit lower than I would have expected. And while we might be on that upswing trajectory of a large population influx in some of the more later planted cotton, as the growing conditions do improve, as Dominic mentioned, you know, where we expect fewer acres to be susceptible to thrips injury. And traditionally, as we get later into June, these insects become more challenging to find in the field. And so Western flower thrips might be out there, but the tobacco thrips tend to tail off as we move into the later latter part of June. And so, um, you know, it's not unexpected that in places like Sampson County, I wasn't finding large numbers of thrips. But the one thing I would caution is, you know, we've got weeds that are drying down and things like that. And one thing I did find quite a few of was tarnished plant bugs. And so there are a lot of tarnished plant bug adults out there uh, right now in the weedy areas. So as we transition out of this thrips crisis, remember that just on our doorstep is another issue that we'll have to think about, which is getting out and scouting square and cotton for ligus. Excellent information. I certainly appreciate y'all's time today. If you have any questions regarding uh, thrips or possible resistance, please contact your local cooperative extension agent and they'll be happy to help assist you with that. And if you like this podcast, please tell a friend. And as always, thanks for listening to Crop Sense. Because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense.